0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Price Picks is the easiest, the most exciting way to get in on the action while you watch your favorite sports and players. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Download the app today. Use code MIB for a first deposit match of up to $100.
1: New Year's is now in the rearview mirror. By now, some of the excitement about our New Year's resolutions may be dying down, much like my excitement for Chelsea Football Club as we get further and further into the season. If you're looking for performance apparel that can help give you the extra push you need to keep up with your health goals, Viore has you covered. Viore creates incredibly versatile and comfortable active wear designed to look great in everyday life in and out of the gym, or in my case, on or off the tennis court. Plus, Viore is 100% off setting their carbon footprint by offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 and beyond they are utilizing better sustainable materials for their products empowering your best active life. With Viore, you can feel good about the things you buy and also how they are made. Viore is an investment in your happiness for our listeners. They are offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash M-I-B. That's vuor dot slash M-I-B. Not only Will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns? Trust me, go to viore.com slash MIB and discover the versatility of Viore clothing.
0: Hey, old GFOP. Before we get to the pod, we've got an announcement from the good people at Geek. For those unfamiliar... SeatGeek's a start-up ticket company that helps you to see your favourite footballer's neck tattoos and ill-advised haircuts live and in person. I've got to tell you, I love SeatGeek. When you try it out, it will change your life, says the man who has just scored some Sigal Ross tickets off aforementioned SeatGeek. They are now giving one lucky GFOP a chance to go to an International Champions Cup game. For a chance to win... All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app or sign up at SeatGeek.com. Go to the settings tab, click add a promo code, enter that promo code G-F-O-P, that's G-F-O-P, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Thank you, SeatGeek. And just to satisfy the Men in Blazers small council We have to tell you, no purchase necessary, void where prohibited, open to all legal residents over the age of 18. Visit SeatGeek.com slash rules for official rules. Even if you don't win, the promo code GFOP will still get you a $20 rebate on your first SeatGeek purchase. But if you can't make the ICC, SeatGeek's also now, oh my lord, the official ticketing partner of Major League Soccer. That should have angel noises. SeatGeek is working with Don Garber no, the league, and its teams to introduce a new ticket-buying experience that will make it easier for you to buy, sell, share, access tickets to MLS matches, mmm, to the pod. Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special. Our guest today is the head coach of your world champion and defending Olympic gold medalist, United States Women's National Team. Last summer, she delivered this country its third World Cup trophy, the first since 1999. She's English-born, Virginia-bred, a manager with football woven into her family tree. We welcome to the pod the soccer mind that returned the World Cup to its rightful home the general who's about to oversee the USWNT's Olympic gold medal defence, one of our top three favourite technical writers turned football managers of all time, the one and only Jill Ellis.
2: (laughs) Hi, guys. How are you? Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Oh, Jill, I'm so excited to have you on the show because there's so much about you that I admire. Starting with, in 1994 you gave up a $40,000 a year job as a technical writer (laughs) with Northern Telecom to take an assistant coaching job at the University of Maryland, go Terrapins, for $6,000 a year. You said you felt soccer urging you to return to it. What is it that you love about the game of soccer, Jill?
2: Everything. I know that's kind of vague, but I love everything about it. I love I love the supporters, I love the game itself, the tactics, the personalities you know, I just, I love sports and I grew up playing sports but, but soccer has just always been top of the list and so I just, I did I chose passion over a paycheck and you know, my mom was absolutely beside herself being a good Scotswoman but my dad you know, was like he's a coach and he's like, he got it so um, I did, I took a leap of faith but I, I just love the game and I think the best part of it, it's given me so many great relationships this sport and, and great friendships and ultimately That's
0: kind of the biggest takeaway. I have another podcast, which is called Technical Writing today. I I also love technical (laughs) writing, so I can only imagine the horns of the dilemma that you were on. You're about to go off to Brazil, the coda to what we call America's stealth summer of soccer, the Copa America (laughs) Centenario Euro 2016. Finally now, some good soccer, with you going off to defend (laughs) Olympic gold. I've got to ask you... Did you watch the Euros and how much does men's football translate through to the women's game? How much does it not? I
2: think it does. I mean, I think trends are trends. You know, right now, I mean, transition is such a big part of our game at the international level. You know, I didn't see that as much in that game. It was almost, you know, the highly organised defending. It wasn't as wide open as I think people and fans would have liked. But yeah, I mean, I certainly see, you know, whether it's specific tactics like building out with a three back, you know, dropping a midfielder, that's a trend that's been in the men's game for a long time. It's very popular now in the women's game. So there's specific nuances like that, but then I just think generally, I would say much like the men's game, the women's game has elevated technically, athletically, and so there's just everything's happening a lot faster. I mean, you know, back in the days when I supported Man United with Lou Macari and Stevie Copple, <laughs> this everything, everything now is just, you know, I mean, they're world-class athletes now. And so I think, you know, much on the women's game. The investment's been there and now everything is much, much faster. The spaces are tighter. Decisions have to be quicker. Execution has to be more precise. I mean, you know, I think that in general is, is very similar to the men's game.
0: Oh, my big takeaway from the Euros ahead of the Olympics is thank God that the Icelandic team didn't qualify for real. <laughs> you unveiled your squad of just 18 for the Olympics. I've tried to think a lot about that task, picking our best 18 women I mean, depth of roster is one of the great yep. American strengths. But before we get to that, I've got a youth development question. How do you understand that the US system develops so many world class female players, but we're yet to work out how to develop world class male players?
2: That's the uh, the million dollar question. I, I think there are great players coming through our systems on both sides. I think you know what people have to understand is, although soccer's been here, you know, I know we had a team in the fifties. Yeah, will they beat England, by the way? Um, but uh, I think the the women's game. We we were right at the very inception of it in terms of the first World Cup. We put a team in there. And so we've been almost from the very beginning in the hunt, in the race. And that's allowed us to not just compete, but to kind of stay ahead. And we've had fantastic investment from, you know, not just our federation, but from people in this country who love the game and want to grow the game. I mean, I never would have had the opportunities I have here if I'd stayed in England. So Americans are really forward thinkers in giving opportunities to women. So I think that's a big part of why the women have, from the very beginning, been competing. And I think the men, you know, it, 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 it takes time. We, we've heard this. Coaches love to talk about processes, but that's the reality. It does take time. I'm actually trying to put together a thing about style of play. And it's so hard to pin down because our strengths is all of our differences in this country but then that makes it hard to get people on the same page at times so it's a great problem in in the sense we've got so many opinions so many perceptions of the game but then it, it is hard to say this is what we value and this is how we need to do it i think on the women's side you know we have very good vertical integration within our not just our national teams programs but you know from top to bottom you know one of my previous job i really pushed hard as a youth director to have a lot of the clubs come in and see the national team programs. So you can create this buy-in and this cohesion, really. I think that's important. And that's tough. It's tough in this country. And that's, you know, a little bit what the men are facing is, it's, you know, it's a lot of highly educated people that have an opinion about the game and getting everybody rowing in the same direction is sometimes a challenge.
0: Too much education, too many blessings. God love you, America. (laughs) But you've just gone through a remarkable challenge. World Cup squad, 23 players. An Olympic squad, yep. just 18 players. What's the hardest yep. squad decision you had to make this time around you?
2: I knew coming out of the World Cup that, you know, there was going to be some some changes in terms of, you know, personnel retiring. I think the hardest thing this time was making sure that we have enough of that experience to carry you through and, and understand how hard it's going to be and infuse that with, with our young players who, you know, it's it's six games over like something like, 16, 17 seventeen days—it's a ridiculous format—and making sure that we have the right balance of people, not just in the locker room and on the pitch, but you know, so much of your recovery and your preparation, your professionalism, happens outside of the, the white lines. So having that balance was important. I think we've done that. I think coming out of the World Cup, we spent shoot, I don't know, six, seven months of really getting. Players that not just I felt could help us in the Olympics, but players that we want to invest in for 2019. That process has to happen earlier now. So that was the hardest thing, I think, just kind of making sure we've got that right balance. And I feel really good about it. You know, a couple of last decisions were splitting hairs and really tough. But overall, I think we've got uh, great experience and a good blend of our new players.
0: How hard is it making those rejection phone calls, telling a player who's trained for months that they won't be on the roster for the Olympics?
2: It is tough. A lot of them, I try and do. You know, I try and do face to face. Sometimes, you know, the, the schedule doesn't permit that. But I had to make a couple of calls to so two of our younger players, Sam Lewis and Emily Sonic, and all four of the alternates were phenomenally professional. And you know, they don't have to be, but they they understand. I think we have a really cool culture in our team that team first sounds like a cliche, but we really do embrace that. So those players, it's the hardest job is going to be as an alternate because you have to train and push and, and help everybody. So they have to be the right people. So while I know that they were disappointed, I feel that especially for our younger players, they understand that this Olympics is really an investment in their future because they're going to be in the thick of it. They're going to be with the team, see the demands of it. And, you know, Press and Klingenberg were alternates in 2012 and it paid us off. So Again, I think, I think they're special people. It's a hard choice, but uh, they were incredibly professional
0: about it. Since a World Cup victory, you've not only overhauled the team's personnel, you've also adjusted the way the team plays football from a transition-based, direct footballing style to one that, now comfortable on the ball, possession-hungry, prepared to carve open opponents with their thought, their teamwork, their movement, their intelligence. Did you need to yeah. do this? Did you yeah. feel the rest of the world was catching up to the direct style of play?
2: I mean, for sure. I mean, what, what I love about the international game, I mean, it's intoxicating. You know, I had conversations with the Japanese coach. You know, he at the time it said, you know, they need to reinvent themselves because people were figuring out how to play against them, how to beat them. And I think, you know, one of the things when I took over the job, I said to the team, if we don't evolve, yeah, we will get passed when you're dealing with people that want to be always looking for the next hill to climb, mountain to climb, it's an easy pitch in terms of this is what we need to do. Now, doing it is sometimes a challenge, but the players, you know, that we've, we have the combination of, of these veterans, these young players, we have, you know, some, some different tools. You know, one of the things I really want to preach is that Possession is a tool. Like you can't just be a possession team because ultimately the goal is to score. Possession is to either move an opponent, a lock a t- opponent. So what we stress with the players is it's about penetration. Whether it's, sometimes it is that direct ball in behind to a, a precision pass to a runner, and sometimes it's beaten lines on the ground. And so it's more about what we value, and we value you know, attack in play. And so now what we've layered in is more, I think, substance in different ways we get into the final third, different ways. It's not just, we don't talk about crossing any ball more. We talk about a final pass in the final third, which puts more emphasis on the quality of that ball, whether it's a cutback, whether it's an early ball in behind, you know. I know I'm kind of being nerdy by now, but I'm excited about it. And now we have players that relish that and we talk about unlocking teams. So it's great right, and the players love it. And certainly I think we, we don't want to be following trends we kind of want to be setting them and I think this step in this direction is, is what needed
0: to happen oh, I don't know about being nerdy you make me want to run through walls just listening to you Jill <laughs> but to compete for and win a place in this final A team for a long period of time it did become every woman for herself I mean speaking to the players they all say that yep. you made this selection process feel like a real competition where almost no one was a cert definitely not for a starters place yep. And there was a real yep. sense of swirling doubt for an extended period hanging over the culture of the team. Can you talk about how you yep. go strategically from the hyper competitive scramble to make the roster to kind of unifying, healing, forging a calm, focused collective of the 18 that you deem battle ready?
2: Dang, I was an English major. I love all your adjectives. Yeah, I mean, this next camp we go into, um, all I will talk about, and and, and when I talk about it, I don't talk about 18, I actually talk about 22. When we went to the World Cup, I always talked about 23, because I think as, a, as the leader, you have to make sure that everybody understands their value and everybody's there to do what's best for the team. So I think part of it is how you approach it, how you talk about it. You know, I also know that having done this a couple of times, that the players, there is this sudden forge of unity once you've named the roster, once they get in this final camp here. They understand, you know, it's... Everybody has to, you know, pull in the same direction. It's partly the culture you put up. It's partly the leadership you select. It's communication. I mean, there's so many things that convey the environment you want and the culture you want. And then ultimately, yeah, I have the beauty of saying, this is a player that we want involved, and this is a player we don't. Does it have challenges? Of course. You're dealing with people that should have egos. They wouldn't be here without egos. They understand when you step into this environment, because you're competing every day against each other, they understand, you know, the expectation on this team. And that is a very situation to be in like you gotta win you need to win the target's on your back and it happens naturally and I think part of it is is a coach's job to try and make sure that we we create this environment
0: I I am interested because on a squad that's been together this long cliques inevitably form I mean there's those who are getting endorsements at the top of the pyramid those that think they should there's the nerd squad the jocks I mean we've all seen the breakfast club How, (laughs) how much is that just what a squad is a collective of smaller collectives and how much are you aware yep. of the different cliques and actively trying to break them up?
2: I don't think I've had to actively do that. I mean, I think if, if you build a trust and a communication with people, they will understand you, not just your perspective, but other people's roles and responsibilities and so that i think is important but yeah as a coach you know when i used to stand in front of my college teams i would say to them straight up some of you i will be closer to than others and some of them kind of look at you sideways but that's human nature and that's really what a team is it's a microcosm of society so so much of what I tell our players is if you want information, you've got to own it, meaning I'm not always going to come to you. You need to own the responsibility of seeking it out. And so we've created this dialogue where there is an accountability on them to, to seek out information. They can't ask their neighbor why they're not starting. Knock on my door, I'll tell you. And so there's just this very blunt you know, not blunt, harsh, but just a very direct style of telling them how it is. And this is what's been interesting with this team, Rogers, is, is the, the hierarchy. It shifts because we had so much of the top layer leave in terms of both of our captains. But yeah, for a while, people are figuring out where they fall in, in, the, in the hierarchy within a team, you know, just any organization. But I will say that, you know, and I've heard this feedback for the young players, they felt so comfortable and embraced. And obviously, they have to get it done on the pitch or that doesn't happen. So like a, a player like Pugh, I mean, the players love her, they rib her, they give her a hard time. But it really does feel like a family at, at times, you know? I mean, there's, there's going to be squabbles and there's going to be a, issues. But ultimately, they realise it doesn't matter how big their endorsement, if we're not successful, it's not going to happen. So we have to make sure we have each other's backs.
0: A team's overconfidence can also be an undoing. It can kind of defeat itself from within. A bit like Spain, back-to-back mm-hmm. Euro champions 2008 and eight and twelve. World Cup won beautifully in between. And yeah. then when you talk to the players, they talk about how they became overconfident, lacked collective focus, started to think, we know what we're doing, we got this, tune their coach yeah. out a little bit. What steps have you taken mm-hmm. with this team to prevent that from happening?
2: This has never been done. A team hasn't won a World Cup in the Olympics. And I'm always the kind of person to dig a little deeper. You know, was it the the rosters were exactly the same, right? Was it from from the World Cup to the Olympics? Was it that a team got complacent? Was it that there was a high turnover? Like, what were the reasons? And I couldn't pin it, you know, looking at other teams that have won World Cups and then not won Olympics. I couldn't really pin it down to one thing, but it is something that's been very much in my mind because, yes, uh, complacency, I think, or expecting um you know i'll be honest we played we played a lot of the top teams this year and you i was going to sound terrible to say but if we'd have lost one of those games it wouldn't have bothered me much because it has you have to stay hungry you have to you know be humbled at times like our tie against japan but we came back from two nil we're up three two and we pissed it away in the last minute that was a valuable lesson so i think that recognizing those moments where we get to keep our feet on the ground and realize that we can't be you know it's not perfect is important i think having new players making a different looking team feeling team is also going to help us because the dynamics aren't the same people have had to go outside their comfort level and that's the final piece like going into the world cup I took this team on to different countries and games that we hadn't been on such a journey before in terms of where we played at certain periods. I took them to Brazil and usually our off season and it was miserable. We didn't do well, but I was trying to make them uncomfortable because it's in those moments that you grow. So I think with this group, you know, whether it's in training, whether it's new ideas, whether it's new personnel, not keeping its status quo is important. But I also think then as a coach, you have to come now rein in and start to get things really clicking. And it is going to be challenging. So I've said this to the players, it it won't be perfect. And ultimately, it's them understanding you can't just show up anymore. You can't. It's it's gone of those days. I mean, it's entirely evident in the men's game and it's been really evident in the women's game.
0: I I read that you interrogated every player to make sure they were still hungry, focused after the delirious (laughs) triumph. Last summer. Can, can you tell us about this process? What were you looking for, and how did you find it out?
2: Well, I- Paul it goes back to like if you really want to know where they're at you sit down one on one with them and so yeah I would straight up ask them. My assistant Tony kind of put it like he's a Swedish guy so it's a little bit graphic but he sort of said you know last summer going into the World Cup it's almost like there's a knife to your throat. There's this expectation of this country. The players were almost desperate because some of them were going to you know believe in the game and da da da. So there was this high motivation, high energy, almost survival mode right? So that's kind of what I wanted to see is like where are we now? Are we licking our chops? Are are we hungry to make history and be the first team to do something and it it is i mean i think these teams in in the dynasties that are built that's amazing for for coaches to sustain success uh, because you have to make sure that people are where they need to be at that moment so i think that was part of my you know it's just trying to get dig a little deeper in terms of where are you mentally the other thing that's so different this year is they've been with their clubs We didn't have that last year. They were maybe in with their clubs for a little tiny bit, but I basically had control of everything. This year, it's like all the other countries. They've been in with their clubs. The difference is our players, you know, the Portland Fawns have traveled like 26,000 miles. It's not like Europe where you get on a train for two hours. So, the template right now is very different in terms of where they are. So, a big part of this for me is where are they mentally, where are they physically? Because that's, you know, six games in whatever many days it is. That's a big part of it in terms of the mental piece. So that's, I think, where, I, you know, led me to sit down and talk to some of them and ask them, you know, where are we at? Where do you think we're at? Do you think we're a cohesive unit? And know, am just asking them questions because I want to do everything I possibly can to make this work.
0: You know, I've got this mental picture of Megan Klingenberg in a polygraph test. I love it. Um, it's funny you mentioned dynasties I've been reading a lot about them in preparation for this interview, reading Sir Alex Ferguson Bill Belichick what, one of the most interesting quotes I found was from Jerry Krause who won six championship rings as the general manager of the Chicago Bulls he once remarked organisations win championships do you agree with that?
2: I would have to agree with some of that yeah I would because I mean if you don't have a support network that allows you to you know, whether it's put together the schedule you want by the players you want, obviously, if you're in the professional ranks, if you don't have people that are on the same page with you, then I think it it will be impossible because it's not just the talent. It's, you know, it's everything. I mean, I credit all of my staff, the medical staff, everybody has a massive role. And if you don't have that infrastructure, yeah, I don't think talent nowadays when, when the margins are so thin, it's not just about talent. It has to be you know, about people behind the scenes. Uh, you know, our sports scientist does a ridiculous amount of work to, to make sure we're where we need to be. So it's a lot more involved than that. So I do think, you know, organisations uh, a commitment to continue to grow has to be a cornerstone of a successful programme.
0: The Olympics kicks off for the United States August 3rd against New Zealand in Belo Horizonte. You'll then travel 1,800 miles... Just in the group stage to play France and Colombia in the dreaded Manaus over the next six days. To win the tournament, you play six games with little recovery time, huge travel. What is the biggest challenge as you're thinking about this Olympics? Is it the travel, the logistics, the recovery time, or is it the footballing opponent?
2: think the physical and the mental piece are a big part if we're in a good place and we got legs you know i think that we you know we can do great things so i think that that's that's a massive part of it i think that also you know touches on on the roster selection i think we have versatility i think our attacking unit uh, that front group can play any of those the seven the eleven the nine there's that versatility and depth so you know, I think the US have historically been very successful at the Olympics because I think we are usually one of the most fit teams. So I think that the, the physical piece is important, the mental piece. And you know, I said this the other day, it's like we're playing we're playing quarter finalists of the World Cup in our group stage. We're gonna play in our quarter finals we'll probably play semifinals from the finalists of the World Cup. So it just because it's such a smaller group, it's a much more concentrated schedule in terms of the quality of the opponent. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be really, really challenging. But I think the travel piece is, uh, you know, something logistics, making sure, I mean, you know, behind the scenes, we're working really hard to, you know, I think there's one flight a day from Belo Horizonte to Manaus where you've got to get two teams and all their stuff up there on a small plane. Now, how's that going to happen? So, you know, there's a lot of things that um, US Soccer is working on to make sure that we have the resources because FIFA they oversee the tournament but they don't run it so it's it is a very different kind of setup in terms of in organization
0: you talk a lot about this team's journey i want to finish by returning to your journey because it is remarkable jill you moved to the united states in 1981 when your father took up coaching soccer over here the family settled in virginia your father john coached the mighty annandale boys club i mean back then In the 1980s, in England, the Dark Ages, very few women played soccer. Your father once said it was considered unladylike in the United Kingdom. To what extent do you look at your life and thank God that you had the good fortune to move to America, land of the free, home of the brave and the epicenter of football played by women?
2: It was the absolute game changer. You know, I, I had to do a speech one time, and you look at all the major junctures in your life, and, and that was the biggest one. You know, if my mom and dad hadn't picked it all up at whatever old they were and, and came over here and rolled the dice on being, you know, uh, immigrants, it, it wouldn't have happened because I wouldn't have had these opportunities. So I feel remarkably blessed. I mean, not just to be able to play the sport, but to actually have a career. There's no way I would have ever dreamed that I would have had a career coaching football you know or growing up in england there's no way so yeah i mean after the last year after the world cup my mom and dad came down and i put actually put the medal around their necks and said well listen, you're a massive part of this because without them I, I wouldn't have had this
0: journey without them you would have been the world's greatest technical writer but
2: <laughs> well, probably not wasn't so <laughs> <in that area. laughs> but,
0: but can you just describe the feeling that you experienced as a young girl when you stepped off the plane here in the u.s And you realised that you could get a game here with other girls and not just have to play with your brother and his mates
2: well I tell you one of the most uh, this kind of sums up like well, I thought one of the most amazing things was when I was handed a jersey like a uniform like oh my god I, mean, I <laughs> then I knew that this was real I had to pinch myself because you know I'd never, I'd never put a jersey on in my life unless I got one for Christmas you know but it was that moment I realized I'm, I'm actually doing this and I remember the coach saying well you know where do you play I said anywhere anywhere you need me you know because I, I wasn't really drilled in 11 a side I'd only played you know pick up my brother so I, I just think at that point I mean, I, I loved it. You know, I was I was a pretty decent field hockey player in England and always dreamed about playing hockey for England, you know. And then I came over here and I'm like, forget that, man. This is my sport. I, just, I love it. So I feel very, very fortunate.
0: For oh, it. it is a joy to hear that story. I mean, Yentl is one of my favorite movies. You are like the footballing Yentl. <laughs> but you're born in Portsmouth, England. You're a naturalized American citizen. I do wonder, and I won't put you on the spot because it will make headlines in England, if the English men's national team came <laughs> calling, whether you would consider that job because Lord knows, Jill Ellis, they need you. Jill, Oh, you're sweet. thousands and thousands of our listeners across the nation join me in saying this because I want to wish you and your team Godspeed as you set off to Brazil. We wish you health, happiness and glory. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at
1: wondery.com slash survey.